We've seen that uh, the one act of saving faith involves the three elements of uh, recognizing God's truth, knowing what it means, knowing what God says, of realizing that it is in fact true, that what God says about himself and us is in fact reality, and thirdly, resting on that, depending ourselves on that, throwing our full weight upon God's revealed truth. But overarching all of these elements, overarching the act of saving faith, is something that we seldom think or talk about. What do you suppose that is? Sermon title. Oh, that's very astute. That's absolutely right. It's a critical element, the element of submission. It makes a great difference. In fact, I would say it makes all the difference, and I'll show you that from Scripture today. So let's just dig right in in an exposition from Romans chapter 10, and you see you've just got space. We'll be using the Legacy Standard Bible given to you in your uh, outline there as the basis of our, our, uh, our study. And let me lift these verses out to you, and in so doing also go to other parts of Scripture that bear on this truth. So, beginning with verse 1. Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Well, who does he mean by them? He's talking about Israel. We see that in chapter 9, verses 1 and 4. Israel, his, his relatives in the flesh, the nation of Israel, nothing, no esoteric, deeper meaning, just the nation of Israel, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So his heart's desire and prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Now, where we'd look at that nation in the time of Paul and Jesus, we'd, we'd see a, a small people, we'd see a, a poor people, we'd see an oppressed and repressed people surrounded by people who view them as odd and bizarre, uh, kept down by prejudice. All of those are problems, health problems, sanitation problems. Uh, but Paul goes to what their real problem is, and it's not any of those things. Their real problem is that they're not saved. It's not that they, they, they lack recognition and power, it's that they lack salvation. He is praying for their salvation, and you might initially react to that and say, well, how could that be? They're noted for their religion. You see marks of their religion all over the place. It's in the way they dress, it's in the way they eat, it's in how they work their calendar. It's all over the place. How can he say that they lack salvation? How can this be? They're identified as religious. Well, the answer comes in the next verse. He says, for, here comes the explanation, for I testify, testify about them that they have a zeal for God. That's very good, but not according to knowledge. Oh, that's very bad. To have a zeal for God, and, and as I say, it, it, you could see it all over the place. You could see it in their temple. You could see it in their priesthood. You could see it in the, the, uh, the uh, various offerings and observations. Yes, they have a zeal for God, but not in accord with knowledge. And that word for knowledge is epignosis. It, it, it means accurate knowledge, true knowledge, full knowledge. They know things, but they don't know the truth of the matter. Zeal without knowledge is superstition. And we see a great many zealous religious people who are simply superstitious. Zeal without knowledge is idolatry. And we see a great many religious people, very zealous, but they're idol worshipers. And so Paul says about his own kinsmen, according to the flesh, zeal is good. Zeal for God is good. Zeal without the knowledge of God's truth is damning. Damning, yes, because he says they lack salvation. Zealous, but unsaved. How many today are sitting in churches, maybe even hearing the word of God, zealous, but damned? That was the case with Israel. What was the problem? They lacked true knowledge, but what specific knowledge did they lack? They knew a lot. They had the word of God. It was read. It was perhaps even chanted. But still, they lacked knowledge. Knowledge of what specifically? Well, he says in the next verse, verse 3, for not knowing about the righteousness of God. Very literally, for being ignorant, the righteousness of God. This is the thing. This is the object of their ignorance. What they don't know is the righteousness of God. So, not knowing the righteousness of God, not knowing about the righteousness of God, on the one hand, that's negative and positive, seeking to establish what? 
their own. Their own what? Tell me. Their own righteousness. Ignorant of God's righteousness, seeking to establish their own righteousness. What's the, up, uh, the upshot? They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Now note well that word. They did not subject themselves. That's a, that's a, a military word. It's a hierarchical word. They did not subordinate themselves to the righteousness of God. Here is the truth, the full truth of God's righteousness, and they did not position themselves under that truth, but over it to establish their own righteousness on their own standards and by their own lights, not by God's. So Paul, when he speaks of the righteousness of God here in Romans, he doesn't just mean vaguely or generally the idea of God's righteousness. He has a very specific reference. And to see what that is, turn back to the first chapter of Romans. Turn back to Romans 1. You'll need the translation in your outline, but you'll also need your Bible. And mostly we'll be looking at Romans, mostly. So chapter 1, where he's setting up what this whole letter is going to be about, I'll just cite, read from the, the Greek text. Paul says, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and the unintelligent, I am debtor. Thus, as far as me, eagerness is also to preach the gospel to you in Rome to evangelize you in Rome, to tell the good news to you in Rome. Why? Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God resulting in salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and for the Greek, for the righteousness of God in it has been revealed by faith alone, or literally by faith unto faith faith from start to finish. The righteousness of God in it, in what? In the gospel. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed by faith alone, just as it stands written, but the righteous by faith will live. So Paul, right at the outset, announces the theme of the righteousness of God which is revealed in the gospel. And what he means, we've seen uh, by this, is God's way of being righteous. God's gift of righteousness to the person who simply believes the gospel. God's righteousness bestowed as a gift on the basis of faith alone. And it's the gospel that conveys that. It's the gospel that is God's means of giving that to people. It is the receptacle. It's the object of our faith. On our part, we receive it by faith, but it's the truth of the gospel that conveys this. And, and let's remind ourselves, what's the gospel? Is it a dance? Is it a drawing? Is it a, a figurine? Is it a smell? The gospel is a message in words. It's language. It's language conveying truth. And so by hearing, understanding, believing, and resting on that language in faith, a person comes to salvation. So, Here's a good time for us just to pause and remind ourselves what the power of language is. I just broached that in last Sunday's sermon. What is the power of language? The power of language is its power to create obligation. Whenever anyone comes and speaks to you or any, any communication word comes to you, immediately we're faced with choices as to whether or not we submit to the words brought to us. First of all, we have the choice of over whether we're going to listen or not. Your phone rings, somebody's calling you, you go for the red or you go for the green. <laughs> An email, you open it or you delete it. Somebody starts talking to you, you do or you don't say, you know, I'm really busy right now, or you stand and you listen to it. There's choices right from the outset. And then comes the content of what's conveyed. And there's always an obligation. I know we don't think of it that way, but there's always an obligation. For instance, when I say that to you, I'm obliging you to agree with me. Now, you may or you may not, but my words oblige you. I'm making that assertion, so how do you respond to that assertion? And language conveys many different sorts of things. There are, there are just, uh, you can relate an event, you can make a command, you can give an encouragement. Language does a great many things, but all of them contain in it an obligation. And the degree to which we feel that obligation varies according to what? It, it varies according to what we think of the person speaking to us. 
If, if it's a person we trust, then we, we put great weight in what that person says. If somebody, you know, a, a man's wife has a few unaccounted hours, and he says, where were you? And she says, shopping, and assuming a good relationship, and he trusts her, he thinks no more of it. She was shopping. That's it. He doesn't start suspecting or answering, asking questions or hiring detectives or anything like that. He takes her word. He trusts her. He knows her character. You see, I tell you something that happened in my childhood, perhaps you take my word for it because I was there and why would I lie? Unless it really makes me look good, then you might wonder if I'm embellishing it a bit. And fair enough, because I'm capable of being inaccurate. I'm capable of twisting the truth. All human beings are capable of doing that. It's a, it's a constant interaction when there's language in play. But all of that changes. Now, the fact of obligation doesn't change, but the backdrop of it does when the speaker is God. Someone who is literally incapable of lying. He just doesn't have that bone in his head. It's not in him to lie. Knows everything. He knows all facts because he created them all. And he decreed them all. And when he speaks, he speaks nothing but the absolute truth. So if your obligation listening to me is, is measured and relative, what is our obligation when God speaks to us? Absolute. It's absolute. Well, when he speaks what to us? Well, when he speaks anything to us. And this has been a matter of, of debate over the years among uh, Christian scholars who don't like parts of what the Bible teaches and they want to get out from under it. And say, they say that the Bible is authoritative in matters of faith and ethics. But not history, say, not science, not other things, and now I think those same people are wondering about ethics. That may maybe not even there either. But you see, God's word is God's word, and it doesn't matter what it says. I'd like to illustrate this to you a little bit. Think of Deuteronomy 6.5. What does Deuteronomy 6.5 say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. And what is that? That's command. So that obligates me to love God. It comes with God's authority. But what about Genesis 1.1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That doesn't tell me to do anything. <laughs> but, but, so I say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What are you going to do about it? Well, what would I do about it? Well, the truth is, I believe it or I don't, right? It obligates me to believe that that's how the universe began. I'm obligated by every word in the Word of God. So now I come back to what is the gospel? It's a message. Conveyed how? In dances, in recipes, in words. Do those words obey us? Uh, uh, obligate us? Do they obligate us? Well, yes, they do. Yes, they do. They tell me God's message about how I can be right with Him. God says to me, you're, you are a sinner, you are guilty, you are judged and under my wrath, and your only hope to be accepted by me is if you turn away from all your works, don't hope in them in any way, and instead trust in Jesus Christ alone, crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, ascended, trust in him alone for your salvation. And hearing that message, I do what? Really, I only have two choices. I come under it, accepting it as true and throwing myself on the mercy of God in Christ, or I put myself over it and say it's not that important to me. I, I have a better way, or I just don't see it as being that momentous. It doesn't, it doesn't speak to me. Now, of course, it does speak to me. It's addressed to you, to me, but, and it obligates us just by that fact, but how we respond. We either submit or we put ourselves over it. To use Paul's word here in Romans 10.3, we subject ourselves to it, we subordinate ourselves to it, or we rebel against it. And as he says, we reject it. What did the Jews do? Seeking to establish their own righteousness. So God says, your only hope of righteousness is faith in Jesus Christ. In Israel, en masse, as, as a nation, as a people said, no, we reject that. We believe that we can establish our own righteousness by faith and works and grace. A mixture of what God gives and what we give. We believe we can establish enough righteousness to be accepted to God. They heard God's way. They're obligated to submit to God's way, but they rejected God's way. And so the only option, the only alternative to submission is, is what? 
It's rebellion. Passive or active, loud or quiet, that's the only alternative to submission. Because, Paul says in verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You see, he's the, he's the end. I, I would translate that he's the culmination of the law. He's what the law leads up to and where the law reposes. The law points to him and is fulfilled in him. And so he says the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So the way to know God's righteousness is not by doing anything. It's by believing something. It's not by doing works, it's by believing words. And those words are the words of what? The Gospel. The words of the Gospel, which point us to Christ and are all about Christ. So, in rejecting Christ, they've rejected their only hope for righteousness. In seeking to establish their own righteousness, they actually forfeit all possibility of righteousness in God's eyes. So, that leads up to Romans 5-17, which I will mostly summarize, Romans 10, 5-17 makes the point that the law is all about works that we do. The gospel is all about words that God speaks. The law is all about our obligation to do works. The gospel is all about God obliging us to believe in the words of the gospel about the works, not of us, but the works of Jesus Christ. The law says do, the gospel says believe. The law says obey commands, the gospel says trust Christ. And so in in insisting on their way, they don't come to know the righteousness of God in Christ because they don't trust as God calls them to. They reject Christ. The law says do works. In fact, to to see that, turn back to Romans chapter 4. I'll use the LSB and I'll, I'll read to you. The, the passage is Romans 4, 1 through 5. I'm going to pick out part of it. Starting with verse uh, 2, Paul is asking a question about works and he says, well, what did Abraham find to be the case in knowing God? He says in verse 2, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. I did this. This is my part. And then he says, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. As the word of promise comes to us in the gospel, so a word of promise came to Abraham, and his response was to say amen, was to believe that word of promise. Now look at this principle in verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wage is not counted according to grace. So you put in 40 hours, and your boss gives you the paycheck. You don't say, thank you, this is very kind of you. It'd be nice to say thank you, I suppose. But you don't say what a wonderful gift. And if you were to say to you, you know, I just wanted to give you a gift. Well, no, really, it's not a gift, is it? You just worked 40 hours for it. It's your wages. It's not a gift. Gives you a raise or a bonus, okay, that's a gift. Uh, But if he pays you your wages that you worked for, that's no gift. That's just salary. That's just payment for work done. And so Paul says, if you work, yeah, that's what you get. You get salary. That's not grace. But look at verse 5. To the one who, what does he say, does not work but believes. Faith is not a work. Faith is the absence of works. Faith is simply trusting in God's promise. Trusting in God's words. Throwing myself on Christ in faith for salvation. The one who does not work but believes upon him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So you see, the whole issue of righteousness is a matter of faith. God has declared his way of righteousness in the gospel. As Paul said in Romans 1, in it is revealed the, gospel, the righteousness of God by faith alone. And do I accept God's terms, or do I insist on establishing and pursuing my own? That's the difference. If I accept God's terms, I am submitting myself to his word. If I insist on my own way, I'm rebelling against his word. I'm rejecting it. I'm putting myself above his word. And I want to focus on verses 16 and 17 here in Romans chapter 10. Romans 10, 16 and 17. Because Paul says, however, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by 
hearing the word of Christ, and sorry, and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, I want to first take issue with a translation, even the LSB, when he says, they did not all heed the good news. Now, it's not a bad translation. I just want to point out something about the word. The word is, if I usually, if I, if I say Greek, it's for a reason, not just to say, hey, I know Greek, but to show you something. The, the verb hearing, excuse me, the verb translated heed is a verb hupakuo. The word hearing in verse 17 is akoes. You hear, uh, let me say it noun way. The, the, the noun for heeding is hupakoes. The noun for hearing is akoes. So what's the difference between hupakoes and akoes? That hupo, that hoop at the start, is a preposition that means under. And so it's the nuance of, of hearing as a subordinate. Hearing from an under position. Not, not hearing as a peer, and not hearing as a superior, but hearing as a subordinate. Hearing a message that I'm taking to heart. So heed, as I say, not a, not a bad translation. You usually translate it submit to. But you see, that's the idea. Verse 16, they did not all submit to the good news. They heard it, but they didn't hear it from below. They didn't hear it submissively. They didn't heed it. And faith comes from hearing. It all depends on hearing. We've got to hear, and we've got to hear it as subordinates, which is the only appropriate way of hearing a word from God. Amen? Is, is it ever appropriate to hear a word from God as a peer? As if we were equals? Does that ever make sense in any context? No. And does the position of judging God's word as if we're superiors, does that ever make sense? No, only to in hell. And even then it doesn't really make sense. Just everybody nods. But it doesn't make sense anywhere or at any time. So they didn't submit to the good news and faith comes through hearing the good news. They didn't hear submissively so tie that into verse 3. What did verse 3 say? Not knowing about the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not subordinate themselves to the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. It's God's way of being right in his eyes, by faith alone in Christ alone. But they did not accept that. They were sure they could do something. They, they had something to contribute. And it was absolutely essential that they do their part to be in, righteous in God's eyes. In fact, this thought of the submission of faith forms something of an inclusio to the letter of Romans. It's found at the very start and it's found at the very end. Turn back to chapter 1 and look at verse 5 with me. Romans chapter 1 and verse 5. Paul here has mentioned Christ Jesus and he says, through whom we received grace and apostleship. Look, for the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name. Now you could translate that grace and apostleship for faith's submission. For the submission of faith. Submitting to the faith. This is what he's going about doing. Proclaiming the faith. Proclaiming the gospel. So that all the Gentiles might submit to the gospel. And look at verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now, with that in mind, jump ahead to the end of the letter in chapter 16. And first, we'll look at verse 19. In chapter 1, verse 8, he said, your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. In chapter 16, verse 19, he says, for the report of your obedience has reached to all. In chapter 1, it's faith. In chapter 16, it's obedience. And it's that word, hupakoe, your submissive hearing of the gospel. Faith and, and submission, they are two sides of the same coin, if you will that there is a submissive aspect, obviously, to saving faith, because in saving faith, we submit to the message of God, to the gospel of God, and thus to God's authority. Faith is submission. It says faith in chapter 1, says submission in chapter 16, and then again look at verses 25 uh, through the end. 
Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the Gentiles, leading to obedience of faith. Same words as chapter 1, verse 5 leading to the submission of faith, submitting to the faith of the gospel, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. So at the start and at the end, there's a submission to faith, that we submit to the gospel, we listen to it submissively and put ourselves under God's message. This is also put very vividly in the middle of the letter, chapter 6, turn to chapter 6. And look at verses 16 through 18. Here in chapter 6, he's talking about can we continue in sin? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Uh, And he's very definitively saying no. And he's uh, speaking in verses 16 and following. Do you not know that when you go on presenting yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, there's that word hupakoe, for submission. You tell me what to do and I'll do it. I submit to your words. When you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. There's the verb, hupakuo. Either of sin leading to death or of obedience, there's submission again, leading to righteousness. But Now this is very dense wording, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed, you were submissive from the heart to that pattern of teaching to which you were given over. Now, what is that pattern of teaching? That's, that's the gospel and all of the implications of the gospel that the apostles open up. He says, you submitted from the heart to that pattern of teaching. And then he says, to which you were delivered over. Now, there's a, a glorious use of that verb. That verb has a very dark use over and over in chapter 1. Man in his rebellion, God keeps giving him over to further sin. In his sin, God gives him over to further sin and further darkness and further corruption. But here's that same word. But in this case, in the case of the elect, God gives them over to submission to the gospel, to the pattern of teaching that they were delivered over to, a very different delivering over in the case of God's elect. So you were submissive from the heart to that pattern of teaching to which you were given over And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So again, what is that pattern of doctrine? Is it it do more and better works that you might be saved? Is that the pattern of of doctrine? No, the pattern of doctrine is repent of all your works. (laughs) Repent of them all and trust in Jesus Christ alone to be saved. That's the pattern of doctrine. Confess Christ as Lord, trust him to save you, and then live under him. This is the gospel, and it's because the gospel is a message that we must believe in a subordinate way. We must submit ourselves to that message. Uh, we find this in a number of other verses. I'll just bring you one, uh, Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. Let's take a quick look there. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. There's a phrase here we find a few times in the book of Acts about the word of God spreading or increasing. So Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase. What he means is the gospel continued to spread. Not that it got bigger, but that it got a bigger coverage. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. There's that verb, hupakuo again. Hupakuon te piste. And it's an imperfect verb, so it means that a great number of priests kept becoming submissive to the faith. Now, what does he mean there? Did did they start doing another kind of good works? No, it's not what he's saying at all. They became submissive to the faith. So what does that mean? Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. They heard God's word. They heard the gospel. Christ was preached to them. And hearing those words... They were becoming submissive to those words. Instead of hoping in their works and hoping in their rituals and hoping in their righteousness, they hoped in Christ alone. 
They accepted God's words, saw that Christ alone was Savior, and trusted Christ alone to save them. They became submissive to the faith. They heard God's word, as opposed to the others who obviously didn't hear God's word. And you can see that at every, at every stage of, of the three aspects of faith we've talked about, there are choices of submission and rebellion. I mean, just in the, at the first level, the level of recognition, just even knowing the facts about God's truth. You see, when you say to someone, you know, I'd really love to tell you about how to know God on God's terms. Can I do that? And he says, no. Well, what, what's that? He doesn't want to hear it at all. He doesn't even want to expose his eardrums to the Word of God. And you wonder, what's, what's behind that? I mean, I've known of so many people who have, who have uh, spouses or they have children whose lives are, are sad and dismal and chaotic. And they say, hey, you know, come to church with me. Why don't you come to church and, and hear the Word of God? And they say, no. But because what you've got is that much better? Well, clearly not. But I don't want to hear the Word of God. I don't even want to hear it. No. And then the second level of, well, you hear it, but do you think that it's true or not? And again, you either submit yourself to God's statement of reality or you say, well, I just reject it. That's not the way things are. I'm not that bad. God's not that good. And Christ's not all that, period. And that's rejecting and not submitting. And then the final, well, you've heard the truth and you know that it's true. Will you trust yourself to Christ? No, I won't. Or, yes, please, show me how submitting or rejecting and rebelling so see this is this is all of it this is all of it so there's a there's an exposition of this you see it's in romans chapter 10 it's in the rest of scripture as well and on the basis of that exposition i'd like to make some application to you roman numeral two in your outline make some application of these truths we've seen three very important points of application and the first very important point of application is the gospel is God's one word of invitation to us. The gospel is God's one word of invitation to us. Now, do you think that by my wording there, do you think that I'm saying that that's one word from God, but there are many other options? Or do you think I'm saying that that's the only one there is, and if, you don't, if you're not interested in that, there's no other option? A or B? That would be B. <laughs> it's his one word and it's his only word. That if we want to know... See, now here's the big deal to me and as the Holy Spirit dismantled me in bringing me to Christ. As a 16-year-old boy, hard, arrogant, deceived, in a cult, uh, uh, and hard, hard against Christ. But the Holy Spirit just nut by nut and screw by screw just took me apart. And I realized that my idea of God, my idea of God, my idea of God was exactly that. It was my idea of God. And what was my record? What was my authority for deciding who God was? How was I qualified to decide who God was? And the answer was, I wasn't. So then I began crying out to God to know him on his terms. That's why I, you hear me use that phrase a lot. That's because that was branded into me at my conversion. It's the difference between knowing God as we feel God to be, which is idolatry, or knowing God on his terms. Well, God has one word of invitation to us, and that is the gospel, and that focuses on Christ. Again, remember the authority of language. When God speaks to us, he speaks to us as God. Well, you don't often hear me talk about sharing the gospel. You know, I'll share a sandwich with you. I'll share a song with you. I'll share lots of stuff with you. But the gospel is, is not a sandwich. And it's not a song. It's, it's God's word. It's the king's command. It's the king's word. And it comes with all the authority of God. And remember, God is under no obligation to save anyone. That God saves one person is an act of sheer grace and mercy. And people look at what the Bible clearly teaches about God, the doctrine of election. They say, well, I don't think that's fair. He should have chosen more. Oh, I don't think it's fair either. He should have chosen nobody. If you want to talk about fairness, he should have chosen nobody. Ju that fairness is a synonym for justice, right? And justice is he chooses nobody. He leaves us all to our sin. That he chooses even one person. That he chooses millions, billions. Uh, it, it's, it boggles the mind. So God's word comes with God's authority and the gospel presents Christ as the one way that God has provided 
for man to be reconciled to him. What does Jesus say? This was central in my conversion. John 14, 6, what does he say? I am one way. Is that what he says? I am one way. I am one truth. No, he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Very few come to the Father. No, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, we, many people come to God. There are many roads to God. Everybody ends up to God as judge. But there's only one way to him as Father, and that's through Christ. One way, the way, the truth, the life. What does Acts 4.12 say? What does Acts 4.12 say? For there is salvation in no other. For there is one name given under heaven, no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus Christ. Uh, and 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. Paul says, I make known to you the gospel. There aren't many gospels. There aren't other gospels. There's just the gospel. And how does he make it known to them? Does he dance it for them? Does he gesture it for them? Does he, does he um, aromatherapy it for them? No, he, he explains it for them in words because that's the gospel. It's words. It's a message from God. He explains the gospel to them. And so, remember, how does Hebrews start off? Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. God, having spoken in many ways, in many portions, in times past to the fathers by the prophets, then what? Has at the last of these days spoken to us by His Son. Christ is God's last word to us. What God has to say to us today is Christ. That is God's word to us. It's His one way on His terms to know him. It's his one word of invitation. And so we need to understand it's, it, evangelism is not the opening of negotiations. Evangelism is not God's first offer. Well, it is his first offer. But it's also his last offer and his only offer and his final offer. That's, that's God's style of negotiation. Well, how can he do that? Um, I think because he's God. I think because he's God. He doesn't need to negotiate. He tells us his terms, and we either submit to those terms or we rebel against them. Actively, passively, there's just the two options. The gospel is God's one word of invitation to us. Secondly, as such, the gospel is non-negotiable. The gospel is non-negotiable. Scripture says this many times in many different ways. For instance, the start of the letter to the Romans. What does Paul say? And, and tell me, what part of this says that it's non-negotiable? Paul, a servant of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What makes the gospel non-negotiable? It's that it's the gospel of God. It's the gospel of God. Now, Paul someplace says my gospel, but he just means the gospel I preach. And what gospel do you preach, Paul? The gospel of God. And remember what he says in Galatians 1. That I am astonished that you are being led astray to believe in another gospel. And then what does he say? Which is really not another. There, there aren't multiple gospels. There's not gospel for people who like Jewish style and gospel for people who like Gentile style and people who like country style and people who like Kate. There's just the one gospel. It's, it's not customizable. And so the gospel of God is non-negotiable. Return to Hebrews chapter 2 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 1 through 4. Hebrews 2.1, he says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, is there any chance of it changing? No. If we don't like this gospel, should we wait for a better gospel? No. It's, it's not, there won't be a better gospel. And there won't be another gospel. The, the issue is not whether the gospel will change. What's the issue? Will I hang on to it, or will I drift from it? So Paul says it's... In, uh, Paul... Uh, the writer of the Hebrews, whoever he was, uh, says that we need to pay close attention to the gospel lest we drift from it because it won't change. We must submit to it. 
In fact, he says, if, if, if we don't, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. This great salvation revealed in the gospel, if we neglect it, if we don't submit to it, how can we escape? Because of the authority inherent in it. And so look at chapter 10, Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. Hebrews 10, 26. Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Yeah, under the old dispensation, bringing sins was ordained by God. God didn't save them by sacrifice at that time either. He saved them through faith. But the sacrifice prefigured the sacrifice of Christ. But he says, now that Christ has come, and the covenant, the old covenant has been rendered old by the coming of the new, he says, if we receive the knowledge of the truth, in other words, you hear Christ preach, you hear the gospel preach, and you just go on rejecting it, you just go on like it never happened, well, there is no sacrifice for sins. You can't go back to Moses and offer those sacrifices because the new has come. The fulfillment has come. You can't hope that they will bring you salvation or forgiveness. And so he says, all you've got, if you you turn your back on the gospel, all you've got is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now what puts us in that position? Hearing the word of God and not submitting to it. That's, That's all it takes. Hearing the gospel and drifting away from it. Hearing it and not coming under by Uh, repentant faith. Now, this is critical that it's non-negotiable. I see, I'll see a a celebrity Christian convert at this point and an apostate just a few months or a few years later, and I know what happened, that this person saw that Jesus might be good for him in some ways, but after the passage of time, Jesus became more a burden than a blessing because he wasn't looking for Jesus. I remember one of my first attempts at witnessing when I was a teenager, a friend in high school, and I, I, I did my best to, to preach Christ to him, and I remember what he said. He listened to me very respectfully, very kindly. He listened to what I said, and he said, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, but, and, I, and I'm trying to convince myself that, that believing in Jesus would make me a better writer. See, this is why the gospel didn't appeal to him, because the most important thing to him was to be a successful writer. That was the greatest thing. And he's listening to me saying, okay, so how is this going to help me be a better writer? Because that's his, that's his greatest goal in life. But that's not the gospel. That's not the Christ of the gospel. He's not here to help us find our dreams. He's here to take us to his reality and rescue us from our dreams, our dreams which are sure to become nightmares under God's judgment. So you see, uh, this is critical. Um, theologian, Burkauer, uh, don't often quote, but speaking in another connection, he, he really made an excellent remark. He said, faith does not possess one single constructive and creative moment. It rests only and exclusively on the reality of the promise. That, that's just really important. Let me open that up. He says, faith does not possess one single constructive and creative moment. So if you and I are going to write a book together, we're both going to put something into it. There's going to be a little bit of you and a little bit of me in it. If, if we join in a project, there's going to be something of both of us in it. You do the parts you're good at, I do the parts I'm good at. We're, we're going to remodel a room, we're going to just, whatever it is, we're going to con- collaborate on it, right? But saving faith is not a collaboration. We don't construct anything and there's nothing creative about it. In fact, if there is anything about creative to it, then it's not saving faith. Because what is saving faith? We're presented with a given, fixed, absolute message to which we either submit or against which we rebel. And there's no other alternative. Saving faith submits to a given, unchanging message. There's nothing creative or constructive about saving faith. And that, by the way, is blasphemy to modernism. A friend of mine, a scholar, Carl Truman, wrote very well, excellent essay recently. He said, our postmodern world sees all claims to truth as bids for power, all stable categories as manipulative, and the task of the academy is to catechize students into this orthodoxy. 
So that's what our colleges and universities are doing, training students to believe that any truth claim is a power bid and that uh, saying that there are stable categories is manipulation and it's probably racist as, uh, as well. Uh, that's being added as well. But you know, in a, there is truth to that, that a, 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 a statement of truth is an assertion of power, but to the Christian, it's not my power. It's not our power. It's God's power. His statements of truth are power. And that, at root, is why we hate it. Because we don't want to submit. Romans 8. The, the mind of the flesh hates it, is hostile to it, cannot submit to the law of God. And that's why the gospel is so offensive in the modern world. Because it's a truth statement, and we reject truth statements. In fact, we absolutely reject truth statements. In fact, it's absolutely true that we reject truth statements. That, that's, that's human viewpoint. It always collapses on itself if you scratch the paint just a little bit. <laughs> you just scratch the paint a little bit. Oh, there it is. There's the problem. There's the rust. So saving faith submits to this fixed, unalterable, non-negotiable word of God. The gospel is non-negotiable. And third, finally, salvation hinges on our response. Salvation hinges on our response. And that takes us right back to the beginning of Romans 10. And the fact that insubmission damns. Insubmission is an archaic word. You won't even find it in all dictionaries, but I think we need the opposite of, <laughs> opposite of submission is insubmission. Insubmission damns. The refusal to submit to God's word damns. What does Romans 10 say? Brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Why aren't they saved? Because they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and seek to establish their own and don't, what does he say, submit to God's righteousness. In submission damns. They can't be saved as long as they won't submit to God's way of righteousness, which is faith in Christ alone, as we hear of in the gospel. Second Corinthians, sorry, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7b and 8. Second Thessalonians 1, 7b and 8. Speaking of the time when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. Now, that word obey, once again, is the verb hupakuo. So don't read that and think, oh, you mean they don't follow all the commands of the Bible so that they can be righteous enough to be saved? No, they don't submit to the gospel. And what is the gospel? What, what work does the gospel tell us to do to be saved? The Jews asked Jesus in John chapter 6, what things might we do that we might be working the works of God? And what does Jesus respond? This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Faith is it. It's not works. It's not works. So when he, when he says they don't obey the gospel, he doesn't mean, oh, they're not kind to their neighbor and they're not good to their parents and so forth. He means they don't repent and believe in Jesus Christ. They don't hear the gospel call, repent for the wrath of God is coming. They don't hear that. They don't hear, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved and believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. They don't do that. They don't submit to the gospel. In submission damns, but secondly, submission is how God saves us. It's how God saves us. By giving us hearts that will submit. Does the Bible say that? Yes, it does. Acts 16, 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Why did she listen to Paul? Because she was a, an intelligent woman? No. Because she was a better woman than the other women there? No. Because she was humbler and more sincere? And No, well, I mean, if any of that's true, it's not in the text. Well, how does the text explain why she listened to Paul when the others didn't? Because the Lord opened her heart. And what's her heart? It's her mind. It's her volition. It's, it's her affections. God opened. If, there were, if, she, if he opened it, what was it before he acted? Well, it was closed until the Lord opened it. Because Romans 8 says, natural man does not, uh, natural man, uh, sorry, the mind of the flesh hates the things of God 
does not submit to the law of God. 1 Corinthians 2, natural man does not welcome the things of the Spirit of God. But God opened her heart, and she did. Remember Romans 6, 17. We were delivered over to this pattern of teaching. God gave us over to embrace and submit to the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Before he does this, our hearts are all darkness. But an act of God, parallel to an act of creation, moves in our hearts to shine the light on Jesus and bring us to submit to the gospel. Doesn't the new covenant say that very thing? He takes from us the what? The heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh to know him. So, in sum, anyone who says, well, I have my own relationship with God, is telling you that he's an idolater. The only way to have a relationship with God is on his terms. The only way to do it on his terms is to submit to his words. And the one way God offers himself to us for a relationship is the gospel. It's calling us to believe in the Lord Jesus and rest on him alone. That's the only way to hear, to understand, and embrace God's word in the gospel. And the only way to do that savingly is to do it submissively. We don't do it as peers. We don't start negotiations. We come out with our hands up and our pockets turned out. We throw ourselves on God's mercy on God's terms. Now, there's a big problem with that, though. I wonder if you've noticed in our whole discussion of faith, the thought of coming to that from a position of being a lost person, there's a big problem with that. Well, let's talk about that next week. And now let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and how clearly it speaks to us. We thank you for your glory and your greatness and how clearly that shines out in your word. You are the great God. When you speak, all must fall silent and hear. We should tremble. And Father, help us as Christians to remind ourselves how important it is not to drift away from the things spoken, but to pay close heed and to do so submissively. When we hear your word, not to think of it as a suggestion or a thought, but the word of God to which we should submit. Uh, no matter what it is you say to us. In becoming Christians, we submitted to your way of righteousness. But in living as Christians, when you say to us, fear not, when you say to us to trust, when you say to us to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, ah, these two are words from God. When you call us as to how to treat our spouses, our parents, our children, our neighbors, uh, these two are words from God. Help us never to forget that our response to your word always should be to listen from under, to listen as slaves listen, to submit. Only thus will we glorify you in a way beginning to approach what you deserve. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.